hello. I'm Earl Fontenelle, and this is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. Today, we are speaking with Professor Shannon Grimes, who is Professor of Religion at Meredith College in the U.S., and we are here to talk about Zosimus Panopolis, Egypt, metallurgy, and all things related to that fascinating concatenation of subjects. Shannon, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Earl. Pleasure to be here. Zosimus of Panopolis. You have written a book about him and several articles concentrating especially on the sort of social side and the context and, you know, the, the context of late antique Egypt as a key to understanding Zosimus and what he's doing. And um, there's a number of, it seems to me, elements that we need to bring into any account, any adequate account we're going to give of Zosimus, right? One is the the rather fractious state of traditional temple cult in Egypt in late antiquity, which is all kind of falling apart and reinventing itself in various ways, or trying to. One is the state of the sciences. And then there's other stuff we can bring into it, like your, your work on trade guilds, which is fascinating. So I did a dissertation on Zosimos of Panopolis, and I wrote that in 2005. And as I wrote my dissertation, I really had so many questions left over after that, because I didn't, even after writing a full work on him, I didn't understand exactly what alchemists were doing. I still don't quite understand. I don't think anybody does exactly what they were doing. But I really thought I needed to learn more about the context, the social context in which they're working. What, What kind of job did they have? What were they doing for a living? because scholarship was all over the place. Some said that they were um, metallurgists that really didn't have anything to do with uh, religion at all. Some said that it was all about religion. It really had nothing to do with metallurgy. It was all symbolic. So where did Zosimos fit in all of this? So many unanswered questions. So when I revised the dissertation years later into a book, it's not the same as the dissertation, although some of it's the same, but I really tried to flesh out some of the um, social context of what he was doing. And so I really focused on artisans and artisan priests. So you really had two options in the ancient world for working with metals because they were precious metals. Of course, that's wealth. And they were highly, highly regulated by the pharaohs and by the rulers, by the kings. Mm. So you really only had a couple of options. You could, there were no independent metallurgists. You couldn't just, you know, have access to metals and play with them. So you had to be a temple artisan or you had to be, um, in the Roman period, you had to be part of a trade guild. And the trade guilds with metallurgists don't really occur until the Roman period. You have a couple examples of independent goldsmiths um, working uh, that were sanctioned by the king, given special permissions by the king to work in the uh, Ptolemaic period. Okay. But you really don't have trade guilds until the Roman period. And also, still, metals were heavily regulated. So those were my options um, to look at. So that's what my book does, is tries to flesh out the context. And so how, if you can put it in a nutshell, how do you flesh it out? What is the picture that we come to of what Zosimus was doing? Well, I set out to write a cultural biography, I guess. We don't know a whole lot about 
you know, we know more about Zosimos than we do about any other of the early alchemists. He gives us more information about himself, about his profession. We have clues, not a complete detailed account by any means, but we have clues. So taking those and assuming that Zosimos of Panopolis is correct and that he was from Panopolis, there has even been disagreement about that. Some think he was more based in Alexandria, but isn't that based on the Suda entry, as I recall, that says he's yes, from Alexandria? Exactly. You're not going to yes. trust the Suda over Zosimus himself. Trust the Suda. <laughs> yeah. So I looked at Panopolis especially to see what we could find. And I looked in the re- and I stayed close to the region. So geographically, I kind of zoomed in on that area. Um, you know, of course, you can't absolutely stay in that area. I had to travel a little bit. I had to look more in more ancient um, contexts as well to get an understanding of metallurgy, the role of artists and priests in ancient Egypt, and techniques uh, that they were using. Statues made of metals are very rare because they were often looted. Okay, so we have some examples that exist from ancient Egypt, but most of that stuff has been long gone. So what you find is that these statues were polychromatic. Now, we've all heard it's been uh, famously Statues were polychromatic uh, painted, okay? There's been a lot of art exhibits about that recently. Mm. Marbles and things like that were not, statues were not white, but actually painted vivid. Right, like the incredibly tacky uh, Athenian Acropolis, for example, which everyone thinks of as this pristine neoclassical white marble place, but it actually actually looked like a 60s style psychedelic (laughs) album cover. Yes, yeah, it's really uh, strange to see some of these brought to life, right? Well, metals were also polychromatic, and sometimes they don't even know, they can't figure out how it was produced, even today. I mean, highly, highly skilled, where they're bringing, um, they've developed x-ray technologies in the early 2000s that they're able to detect the depth of coloration of these metals. And so when you look at some of these x-ray pictures, um, just vivid, vivid cobalt blues and um, multicolored and so doing that with metals, sometimes it's a, a glaze or a, you know, a patina, something um, like bronzed, right, on the metal. <laughs> I'm not a scientist, so I can't speak very knowledgeably about all these uh, very specific techniques. Right. But they're, the colors are often produced within the metal as a result of the, the, the work, the chemical reactions within the metal, and then produced that way. So very, very highly skilled metallurgists. And in the alchemical texts, art historians are finding that these uh, alchemical texts, which are full of descriptions of color in the metalwork, are matching what they see in the coloration of these ancient statues. So it wasn't about turning lead into gold, as many people believe, but alchemy was really um, coming from this tradition, I think, of temple and it was, you know, these were temple statues. So I think it's coming out of this tradition. You've got some beautiful uh, color illustrations in your book, uh, I should just point out, yeah. which are, yeah, you get the point, right? These amazing black bronze statues with gold highlights picked out. It looks pretty amazing and wonderful, especially if we take ourselves into an antique context where stuff like this was, you literally only saw it in a temple. You, it's not like nowadays where you can walk down the street and see marvels of technology everywhere you look it was like it was a pretty beige existence except for these uh, statues which were absolutely incredible so so let me try to do a historical précis 
tell me if I'm missing anything out. We've got the in the Ptolemaic period, so that's the first. That's the the Macedonian dynasty that rules Egypt after Alexander the Great's mega empire collapses for a few hundred years until the Romans kick them out and take over Egypt uh, in the first century. So under the Ptolemies, you've got evidence of some kind of goldsmithery going on, but mm-hmm. nothing like trade guilds. In the Roman period, we have something like trade guilds. What's our basic evidence for that, if you can quickly run through it? You start to see receipts. You start to see evidence of it in the historical record. Cool. Papyri and stuff like that. So, exactly. So in this period, there is, uh, I guess you could say, like metallurgy as a profession of some kind arising. But then at the same time, throughout this whole period, and let's not even get late antique yet, you have this Egyptian established temple cult or cults, the the traditional religion of Egypt ruled or run by a kind of priestly class who are set aside from normal Egyptian society in lots of ways. They shave their heads. They have all kinds of purity laws, etc., etc. They're running these temples, which are these very, very ancient establishments associated with the temples are traditions of learning. So they're kind of the closest thing you get to kind of schools and Mm -hmm. scientific traditions, craft traditions. And that's going on as well. Now, so, so far so good. When we get to late antiquity, this is where stuff gets funny because temples get defunded in the third century anyway. It depends on where you are. The temples in Upper Egypt, which are down south, continued to be funded. They were more well-funded because that was an area, one, where all the mines were. There was a lot of wealth in that area, and um, they tended to rebel. Mm. There were rebellions. So they tried to keep that region happy and gave more funding to temples down south. And so... Got it. But I guess in in the broad strokes, we can say that the Roman policy of just funding whatever your local religious tradition is, which had been going on not just in Egypt, but everywhere. Like, yes, we'll fund the Temple of Bel. We'll keep the temples of Egypt happy. We'll keep the Libyan priests happy. Whatever, that's cool, because that maintains social order from their perspective. They're happy to have that going on. That does not survive the crisis of the third century. So times are tough. The government is tightening its belt, and any money that isn't going to the army is superfluous. So the temples are disenfranchised, defunded. And then we, we get this picture of a, a whole class of people, the priests and their families and you know people associated with them who are looking for a job, basically. So that's the context where Zosimus is alive. That in, is where he is. Although I think for metallurgists, things were shaken up earlier than that with the advent of, or with the introduction of trade guilds which would happen in the first century. Right. So already there's a kind of, would you describe it as a kind of entrepreneurial resting of metallurgical monopoly from the temples to a a wider uh, social group? So the temples had had, pretty much had a lid on metallurgy and it's been taken from them already. Yes. You did not have to be associated with the temple anymore, of course, to work with metals. Trade guilds also had, were regulated too, so it was all still regulated, but you could be in either context. Now, they also collaborated quite a bit, and I'm sure many people who were temple artisans were also part of trade guilds. So it's it's very complicated um, in how that happened. It's not so cut and dried as you're either one or the other. You could do both, mm. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, because in certain levels of 
metalsmiths. So like goldsmiths, for example, they made more money and they had more power, like they could work as contractors. And so they would get other metallurgists to work together on a project for the temple. They would be commissioned by the temple. Silversmiths did not have that kind of clout. They didn't contract. They made, you know, they had each class of metallurgists. Bronze smiths were even lower than that. Um, they all had special kinds of regulations. And it seems that they only had access to certain kinds of metals. So again, access to metals, highly, highly regulated. Mm. So trying to figure out a lot of research needs to be done, but this is <laughs> as I'm venturing into this territory, this is what I'm finding. And so the question is what degree of collaboration, I guess, did these priests and metallurgists have each had trade secrets so the temples had trade secrets, and also some of the metallurgical guilds had trade secrets too. And so that becomes a very complicated issue because when you're collaborating on a project together for the temple, <laughs> what you can't really have those secrets anymore, yet they are also trying to keep some secrets. So that's when you start to see alchemical texts appear in the Roman period, and probably as a result of this loosening up of secrecy and the need to share from temples to trade guilds back and forth, uh, to me, that makes sense that alchemical texts would begin to appear. Usually it's described that alchemical texts begin to appear in the Roman period because this is when uh, it's usually explained as Egyptian artisans were suddenly, <laughs> I don't know about suddenly, that's exaggerating, but starting to incorporate Greek philosophy into their work. And so that's why you see alchemical texts. But that privileging of Greek philosophy, I don't think is warranted in this case. I think the socioeconomic conditions provide a better explanation of why these texts might have emerged in the Roman period. Yeah. One of the historiographical trends that we're trying to correct here at the Schweppe mm -hmm. is the knee-jerk reflex of reach for Greek philosophy when trying to explain anything, right? This has certainly been uh, relevant for the study of the Hermetica and uh, trying to understand the Hermetica, where you know, Festugier's idea of the Hermetica as bad Greek philosophy, essentially, the theoretical <laughs> Hermetica, has, it really hasn't stood the test of time very well. There, Yeah, there's philosophy in the Hermetica, for sure, but is that really the best way to understand them? Nah, probably not. So this context that you're outlining is very fascinating. Very few people work on this, um, especially and you can see why. You have to be kind of an Egyptologist and a historian of science and a, maybe a scientist, like a chemist, and specialize in these very, very difficult alchemical texts, right? Which are <laughs> secretive and have all kind of layers of obscurity to them and use symbolic language and the rest of it. So it's really, really tough. It is tough. And I'm not a specialist in any of those things. But maybe that's but why think... you've been able to see these connections, right? Because you're not... You haven't got your head down in the laboratory or in, you know, Greek philosophy or whatever. You're just kind of trying to approach this thing with new eyes and go, okay, what's going on? Um, so in this context where we have this complex interplay between temples and Egyptian established religion, which in the late antique period when Zosimus is around is much more fluid and less established than it had been for mm -hmm. thousands of years. It's no wonder that there's talk like in the Hermetic Asclepius that the world is ending because the truths that we Egyptians have always known to be true are no longer true. There's a lot of societal change. Right. You have those temp that situation and you have these guilds. How do you think Zosimus fits into that picture? As far as okay. you can say. 
As far as I can say, I mean, all of it is speculative, of course. I do think that he was a priest mm. because from my understanding, from my research, and I've read quite a bit about metallurgy and, and the roles in the priesthood, a lot of metallurgists were priests, but there are different ranks, there are different levels in the priesthood. So, you know, they may not have uh, performed rituals or done anything, but they were still considered priests. So there were artists and priests. This is one thing in my book, I don't think I did a great job in making, I was trying to stretch like my argument for Zosimos being a priest. I was trying to kind of uh, build it throughout the book rather than like an article where you make a formal argument and then proceed from there. So I wrote an article right after my book was published where I made a stronger argument for him being a priest. So if you look at like the nomon of the Idias Logos, some laws from the Roman period regarding, it gives you a hierarchy of Egyptian priests. Uh, This is also in the Memphis decree, which is a Ptolemaic era list. So as far as ancient, these ancient texts go, or these Greco-Roman Egyptian texts go, there are six, six basic ranks of priest. So there's the high priest, who is the administrator of the whole temple complex. You have below that in rank are God's servants, who are in Greek called prophets, prophetes. Um, they, were, they had the religious authority in the temple, and they conducted the public rituals. Below them, you have clothing priests who washed and adorned the statues, you know, did the daily care and fed the statues and kept them alive, so to speak, you know, um, kept them activated. Below that, you have lector priests who were responsible for reading ritual texts, ensuring correct performance of rituals and hymns, etc. These are the ones that we often say are the, like, uh, the freelance priests that were going around associated with the PGM, etc., Below that, you have the temple scribes of the House of Life. The House of Life, or Anna, that's where you get, it's like the library. It's the scriptorium. This is where they're producing, they're collecting, they're translating texts. This is where you get medicine and science. So they're keeping records, the astronomical records. They're producing all of the, this is like the university, so to speak, um, of the temple. They They also had craftsmen there. But not all craftsmen were part of the House of Life. You do need craftsmen involved because you have iconography. You have to be able to read, to write, to look at ancient recipes, to translate them, etc. So not all artisans also had that scribal training. Below that, below the House of Life priests, then you have various lower-ranking priests, including artisans. So figuring out for me, for Zosimos, this is the, the kind of, this is what I'm looking at. And so I locate him in the house of life because he is a scribe. He's familiar with astrology. He's widely read. He's reading all kinds of stuff. He talks about the difficulties of translating these ancient texts. It's very clear to me that he's working on translating these texts, uh, that he has access to a lot of ancient alchemical recipes and that his work is mostly involved in the translation. So I place him as one of these scribal priests of the House of Life, but he's also an artisan priest, and it was typically the master craftsmen who were in that layer. But he doesn't talk about it in those terms. So that would be like a Greco-Roman hierarchy. And I talked about layers one through six, each with different ranks. Zosimos would be in layer five, supervising artisans in layer six at the bottom rank. Mm -hmm. 
But in more ancient times, that hierarchy was different. This is pre-Ptolemaic. Layers one through five, so from the high priest to the temple scribes, all had the rank of prophet, which is a pretty, it's initi- they're initiated <laughs> into the religious mysteries of the temple. And Zosimos uses this older scheme when he talks about, he talks about the craftsmen being prophets, etc. Right. So that's, what's going on there? Maybe what's going on there is just central Egyptian conservatism. Like he's not, he's not going with this newfangled from without ordering of the priests. He's like going with the old school ways, you know? Right. And maybe his whole temple was doing that too, you know? So whether these these lists that we have, how, to what degree they were enacted, you know, I have questions about. Mm. Um, now, assuming that um, Zosimus was a priest of some kind, and thank you for kind of at least giving us something of a better idea of what that means, because first of all, priest in the Egyptian context means nothing like priest in the kind of familiar, like Christian context that people might right, be familiar right. with. It's totally different. And secondly, even taking that into account, it's complicated and it varies from region to region and gnome to gnome and all that sort of thing. So, but having some, at least some idea of that complexity without really understanding the details, what do you make of his rivalry with the, the priest Nilus? What's, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you can make anything of it, what do you think is going on there? He's definitely competing with him. I think I think Theosebia may be at the heart of that. I think he's uh, they're competing for her attention or for her patronage. Zosimos is clearly advising, instructing Theosebia to some degree. She's a female. Sorry, I'm just saying these words without talking about who these people are. She's a female alchemist. I think she was probably with the trade guilds. You typically don't see female artisans in Egypt. Now, maybe there are some, but I have not been able to find anything. Um, But there were females in trade guilds and usually because it was a family business often. So, but still it's unusual to hear about female alchemists, although we hear about a couple of them in Zosimos' writings. Mm. So I think, and she seems to be the head of a group of metal workers. So I think she may have been a widow perhaps, or maybe a daughter of a metallurgist who in, happened to inherit it and needed some help. She also seems to have money. So she was looking for teachers and Nilos was advising her too. <laughs> so I think Zosimos is uh, very jealous. He has a rivalry, um, you know, whether or not there was any kind of love interest with Theosebia, I'm not sure. I, I don't really get that other than that they seem to have been good friends, but um, she may be part of that jealousy. But Nilos, he just thinks he's he's an idiot. I don't think it means that Nilos is a priest and Zosimos is not, um, just because he calls him a priest. I mean, look at academia. People <laughs> put each other down all the time and disagree with each other right. and don't like each other's techniques or methods or, you know, I have the better way of doing it. I don't think it necessarily means that he's in a different field. Zosimos talks, so whenever he talks about work, he talks about priestly context. So I, I really think he's in the priesthood to some degree. Now, what, what rank, what level he has, that yeah. remains, I have no idea, but and I even, think there's Even just what, what it meant to be a priest in the fourth century, right? Like, yeah. it's just, right. we don't know enough. Um, and if they're freelancing or, or, you know, offering services outside of that to trade guilds, et cetera, I mean, I'm sure they could make good money because temple priests would have had some cachet and yeah, 
in, um, exactly like what what is your social capital what is your capital if you're a priest mm-hmm. and the the money stopped flowing in from the state coffers of rome well social capital you're still yeah. a priest now speaking of priests and speaking of egyptian religion statues play a role in this story in a very mm-hmm. fascinating way what do we want to say about statues i mean one of the things you emphasize in your book very much is that these metallurgical techniques like for example um, creating chemical reactions where you change the color of a metal and create amazing patinas and amazing kind of surface coloration are used in egyptian temple statuary and even and this isn't just by hearsay or uh, textual sources we have some amazing examples of this stuff still lying around we also know from our uh, podcast and from the body of evidence that the Egyptians have a very special relationship with their statues. And moreover, we know that that relationship of with their statues, the idea of that statues are living and sold, or can be living and sold beings, has spread maybe from Egypt, outside of Egypt, in later antiquity, so that we have uh, people insoling statues in a kind of private, religious, entrepreneurial way in the, sort of the tradition of the Chaldean oracles, in the Iamblichus's theurgy, these are just examples that survive from probably what was quite a widespread free-form new religious movement approach to uh, making statues alive and having, you know, having portable little statues so you can take your temple with you and you have a living statue maybe in your house. So what's the relevance of all that living statue tradition to, to Zosimus and to alchemy in your view? Well, I think that is... First of all, where alchemy comes from is from this, that was the highest, the most sacred work of a metallurgist, of course, is to work on a divine statue. And so there were all sorts of rites and rituals that went along with that, including an opening of the mouth ceremony to activate or ensoul the statue, um, which is described more like a birth, a birthing of the statue, actually. I think the theology that you see in Zosimos which is all about divine images in so many ways, um, including making you know the self into a divine image, you know, bringing that divinity out of the self, just like you would. He uses the opening of the mouth. Um, he refers to, for example, mortuary priests. Uh, he mentions opening the mouth in his uh, visions of Zosimos on excellence. There's this translated. So he links it to mortuary traditions, you know, so the same kind of ritual to open the mouth of a statue is performed on deceased body and in the embalming process too, so that the soul could leave the body, return to the body for nourishment. It sort of activates everything. So I think that's crucial to Zosimos's religious understanding. Hmm. So I think you're right about that. Although it's fairly general, so it's a safe it's a safe bet that you're right about that. Um, <laughs> I can I can get deeper. Uh, well, yeah. by all means, do. But I was just going to say that accepting that has, and also taking cognizance of this the trade guild um, background that you've talked about, has major uh, repercussions on the whole history of alchemy going forward. You know, and in our interview with Larry Principe, one of the things he talked about is that a lot of the motifs of alchemical secrecy, which later become this sort of whole language of arcane decknamen and um, mystic initiatory speech and this sort of thing, goes back to much more practical concerns 
for general like keeping actual trade secrets because they're valuable you don't just let anyone know this stuff because if you do you're out of a job and so this what you're saying kind of helps us flesh that basic premise out a little bit which is a fascinating thing from the perspective of the study of esotericism that something that in by the you know by the early modern alchemists the language of hiding and revealing and secrecy and revelation almost becomes like the signature alchemical way of speaking. You know what I mean? And metals are planets and planets are pagan goddesses and pagan goddesses are uh, different kinds of pneuma and the different kinds of pneuma are this. It's everything is referring to everything else in this very kind of inextricable, incomprehensible web of stuff and you have to figure it out. That's your job as an alchemist. This may and probably did have roots in something way more down to earth way more practical almost kind of banal and uh just like working class practical keeping your eye on the ball and not letting stuff slip uh approach to (laughs) secrets you know you see you mentioned the deknamen in there's a temple of hathor at dendera in egypt and it's one of the newer like ptolemaic era temples And there's a house of gold in that temple where they activated, where they consecrated the statues and brought them to life. And so on the walls of that temple, it's a, Thoth and Seishat actually play a huge role in that room. And um, only certain people were allowed to witness those rites, including the master craftsmen, the prophets, maybe a couple of the workmen, the engravers, etc., but anyway, access was limited. I think Sosimos may have had access to something like that, although I'm not sure. Anyway, they have deknamen on the wall. So like if it says this, it means this <laughs> in the recipe. So you see it in the Egyptian temple on the wall that in is this so room cool. that very only very few people had access to. Right. Zosimos, some people think he's, I guess his Christianity, his Nas. Christianity. I don't know. He never uses that word. He talks about Jews. Yeah. Um, but he's he's definitely has this you know Gnostic bent. He's clearly um, reading and thinking along those lines of Gnostic Christianity. Right. Anyway, that's an important part of his religious background too. And I think he's trying to harmonize, as many priests were doing, to kind of survive and to find a way to. <laughs> carry their teachings forward in time, perhaps. Um, he's trying to synthesize Egyptian ideas with Greek ideas, with these Christian ideas, and trying to make this sort of universal philosophy or universal um, religious idea about the divine images. Hmm. And so that, to me, is really interesting. This complicates his view of statues, because Zosimos, when he took you, we're talking about statues earlier. So it's difficult to understand, even though Zosimos probably, he mentions making statues as part of his work. He talks about statues of fortune and statues of the Nile and these kind of typical Hellenistic statues. He also talks about an artisan that made this, I can't remember, Papnidos, I believe is his name, um, who made this beautiful blue, who, who was credited for making this gorgeous blue color in the metals. And he's you know, very much admires his work and talks about how beautiful some of these statues are and that the images are so colorful that they come alive and that people are in awe and fear of them, which is a very appropriate religious response to a statue, to be in awe and in fear, mm. <laughs> of, right? That's, that's reverence. But then also 
he talks about Nilos admiring these when he talks about like the statues of fortune and the Nile and stuff. Then right after that, he, so he talks about praising statues. He talks about the kind of the Hellenistic uh, gods, right? The statues of kind of these common things, fortune, et cetera. And then he talks about Nilos admiring these things and that they're unworthy of admiration, which complicates how do you, how do we read that? So how do we understand how Zosimos felt about statues based on this? In the margins too, there's a marginal note that talks about this same Papnidos who Zosimos praises, talks about him as being an idol worshiper and an imposter. <laughs> mm. So the process of excerpting alchemical texts, having them translated in Christian and Muslim contexts, what is there, what's overlay, you know, yeah, what is interpolation? Um, it's really hard to say because, of course, especially for the Muslim scholars, statues are a big no-no, right? They are, yeah. Forbidden, so um, but, they're not going to be happy. But Zosimus is highly reputed as a, an excellent scientific authority, so you need to somehow square that problem. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And also both the, the Christians to some degree, but certainly the Islamicate cultural tradition had this, what you might call Orientalist, uh, double-sided um, obsession with Egypt. So Egypt, Egyptian culture is on the one hand, the kind of the symbol of all that is bad about non-monotheistic religion, right? And you see in, in mosques in Cairo, like they've actually just ripped down temples and put um, hieroglyphic inscriptions on the doorstep of the, of the mosque. So when you walk in, you have to tread on these old inscriptions to, as a kind of symbolic victory over them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you see this in, in Egyptian um, monasteries as well, Christian monasteries, temple bits being repurposed in this kind of degrading way. But on the other hand, everyone agrees that Egypt is the home of ancient wisdom. And especially yes. in the kind of context of Hermes and Zosimus and people like that, Islam needs that juice. They need that that mojo and that knowledge, that scientific knowledge. So it's it's this double, it's this kind of love-hate relationship, you know. Absolutely. You have travelogues from medieval Arab writings that um, where they're coming and they're spending the night in the temples, including the Temple of Men at Panopolis, which was renowned as a center of alchemy. And they're studying, you know, the hieroglyphs on the walls and they're trying to, you know, trying to figure it out. Hmm. So... Yeah, we shouldn't, I guess, this is a good context in in which to bring up the perennial fascination of hieroglyphics, which precisely at this time in late antiquity are kind of not, are are falling out of intelligibility even to learned Egyptians, right? So they can't read it anymore. No one can read it anymore. And everyone starts speculating on the true meaning of these sacred writings. And that's a process that's going to go on for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And Zosimus talks about the difficulties of translating things. Um, he doesn't specifically mention from hieroglyphics, but it, you know, that could certainly be implied if some of these ancient recipes are written in hieroglyphic, even hieratic and and demotic, you know, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, can be difficult. So yeah. Anyway, he attests to that, that it's it's very complicated. Then you put the decnomen and the coding, that it's cryptographical. And he's against secrets. 
So we talked about trade secrets earlier. He tells Theosebia, don't bother with it because what he's finding is then you can't make the product. <laughs> if, you know, if you keep the secrets, then they get so untranslatable. These texts get so untranslatable and so coded that it leads to bad product and then you're going to lose the art. So it's better to, um, to be open about it. Yeah. Don't require books of secrecy, he tells her. So you have that great discourse of non-esotericism in Zosimus in a certain context. But what's interesting to me as a scholar of esotericism is the fact that he still writes in a way that's blatantly meant to keep secrets some of the time. Absolutely. Right? And (laughs) there's a very interesting parallel case in Vettius Valens, the astrologer, who complains about this text that we call the Hermes text. He complains about Hermes, the author, having written in this really, really obscure way that's hard to understand, which might be a case of... We don't have the Hermes text, so we don't actually know what he's reading, but this might be a case of just an older uh, an older astrological vocabulary and, and way of thinking being lost, and, and Vettius is writing so much later that he doesn't get it. But I think it's probably safe to say that Hermes was writing in an, in an esoteric style, right? He's, he's describing things cryptically on purpose to make it difficult to crack to the lay reader. So Vettius says that, says, complains about Hermes doing that, but then himself is just layered with all kinds of like, you swear to keep this book secret and do not reveal it to the uninitiated. And <laughs> this is the secret and da da da. So he's totally esoteric at the same time. I think Zosimus can profitably be seen in that same light, right? Yeah, I think so. When he does, so in his visions of Zosimos, he's speaking in very coded language, but also people familiar with it would probably be able to recognize some of the symbolism that he's talking about. So I don't know how, it's certainly, I think he's writing in some cases for other Egyptians and other Egyptian priests. I think that the the visions of Zosimos or on excellence is one of those texts. Whereas with uh, Theosebi is writing in a different context, I think to somebody in a trade guild. And so he's talking about things. And I think she's probably Christian, which is why he's using really when he talks about Christian ideas, it's in his letters to her. You don't find it in other works. So I think he's trying to translate some of these ideas into clear terms for her. And as a trade guild, you know, like you don't need this in the trade guilds, but he's probably obligated to some degree if he's a priest. Mm. Shannon Grimes, thank you so much for laying all this stuff out for us. I invite you to be like Zosimus, and while revealing the secrets, stay esoteric. (laughs) 